0: The Silicon Valley Beat, Major Crimes, is a podcast that deep dives into major cases investigated by the Mountain View Police Department. Because this podcast covers investigations including critical incidents and homicides, what we discuss here may contain material that is not suitable for all listeners. Names and other sensitive information may be changed to protect the identity of the innocent.
1: A body that was in disarray just dumped there. I mean, we had no place to start.
0: Episode One: The Body in the Dumpster.
2: He started the morning like he had others before, shuffling through dumpsters behind the Safeway on Stearlin Road, looking for any cans for which he could get maybe a couple bucks. It was early still, just before seven thirty a.m. on what witnesses and police reports described as a dewy January morning. He may get lucky. As he leaned over to pluck through the trash, the man startled. Amongst the cardboard boxes and the discarded fruits and vegetables, a leg poked out from one of the dumpster bins, dark in color. The man wasn't sure if it was a mannequin or, worse, a body. He ducked back to the rear of the store and alerted a manager. Something wasn't right. The manager and a few employees walked back outside to the open dumpster, lids thrown back well before the man looking for the cans arrived. Dew dusted the discarded waste, and as soon as the manager leaned over to inspect what was within, he turned around and went inside to call the police. A two-man fire crew were first on scene. Leaning into the bin, one firefighter reached out for a pulse, putting his two fingers to a wrist. The wrist was cold, too cold. He stepped back and waited for the police to arrive. It was January 18th, 1985. Mm -hmm.
1: Reports both from Syria and Washington indicate the transfer. of The largest unions won council sanctions from the county this labor. This
0: victory council. at C J for San Francisco Mayor Diane Feinstein. That January was known as one of the most intense Arctic outbreaks, according to the National Weather Service. Wayne Gretzky scored his 400th career goal that month. VH1 debuted, and Madonna owned the radio waves with her "Like a Virgin." Two days later, the first Super Bowl hosted in the Bay Area at Stanford Stadium would be televised across the U.S. on three major networks. More locally, Silicon Valley was in its golden age, where tech was booming and we began to see the first iterations of the lore that this section of the Bay Area holds for modern-day entrepreneurs. The CD-ROM had recently been introduced by Sony and Philips, revolutionizing the way in which we would come to share information and entertainment in the coming years. Apple had introduced the Macintosh just one year before in January 1984, and the first Windows operating system was released by Microsoft. Mountain View, though, smack in the middle of all this growth, was still very much a suburb. Homes were ranch-style, and the local dump had closed not two years before to help restore the beloved shoreline and wetlands. Could a murder really happen in the home of high tech? This is Doug Johnson, longtime resident and historian of the Mountain View Police Department.
3: I, I wondered what brought somebody to Mountain View back in 1985, because there really wasn't a whole lot of reasons to come to this town. Um, uh, Shoreline was still landfill. Um, the downtown was... It hadn't changed much since the 40s. Castro Street was two lanes in each direction and was basically empty. Um, you could stand on the railroad tracks and you could look down at El Camino and you could see cars going by because there just really wasn't much going on, wasn't much going on downtown. and um, you know there was no no club scene or anything like that. The only reason, the only regional draw, if you will, in Mountain View at the time was probably St James Infirmary and uh, it was a uh, you know kind of a a, a fun saloon with a 10-foot a, a statue of Wonder Woman as you walked in the door, and peanut shells all over the floor. In
0: 1985, Mountain View certainly wasn't the town that we know it today, with a bustling downtown and multi-billion dollar corporations. But again, could a city, now home to tech giants, and once thought of as a quaint corner of Silicon Valley, really be the place where someone could be murdered?
2: On that cold winter morning, that's exactly what officers Schlarb and Barcelona were trying to find out when they made their way to the Sterling Road Safeway. As the men peered inside the dumpster, they saw a woman, lying face down, wearing a striped long-sleeved shirt, a green sock still on her right foot, a gold and brown high-heeled shoe dangled from her covered foot. She was petite and thin, a little over five feet, with a cropped haircut. Her head was turned just so. Gently looking around her body, officers saw nothing obvious to indicate what had happened to this Jane Doe. But could there be a clue somewhere among her clothes, perhaps in the bag surrounding her body, that could point the officers to the killer? Would the police find the killer in the man who was walking back and forth to his car on Vaquero Drive late the night before? Could the suspect be the person who drove by a home late at night on the same road with a loud muffler? Stop near the Safeway and drive off.
0: A Steerland Road resident noted his daughter had been studying late at night on January 17th, hours before the body was discovered in the dumpster, and heard a car peel out in the driveway adjacent to their home. A Hackett Street resident told police he had heard from a mechanic at the Union 76 gas station just down the road from where the body was discovered that he had seen two men arguing with a black woman in their car. Any one of these clues could lead to something more. Door by door, police searched for answers. More than a dozen cards were left requesting help to call if anyone remembered anything that could possibly help. At least six of those requests went unanswered. Almost immediately, officers on scene that morning encountered a complication. The woman had no identification on her. The red, faded stamp on her left hand, typically indicative of a visit to a club or a bar at that time, was of no use. The only local bar at the time that used a red stamp did not use one the night of the murder, according to the police report. The shoe that dangled from Jane Doe's foot, while manufactured in Santa Maria, could not be narrowed down to a particular purchase area as the shoes were sold across the United States. The investigative technique of simply tracking purchases via a credit card was still nearly a decade away.
2: The watch that was still fastened on her left wrist had no engraving, No personalization to possibly guide the detectives to a family member or a loved one. The ring on her left ring finger too did nothing to help the mystery. Jane Doe could be anyone, from anywhere. Her family, her friends would have no idea what happened to her, but this much was certain something bad had happened to Jane Doe. Here's Don McKay, a retired sergeant with the Mountain View Police Department who, back in 1985, was the sergeant in charge of investigations.
1: Um, They discovered this early in the morning, so it was still dark when I got the call about uh, finding a uh, body in the dumpster behind Safeway, just sort of scattered like she was just dumped there. This Safeway was on the corner of Bailey and Montecito. Well, there was several police cars there, and uh, it was very isolated back there. It it got some apartments back up to that dumpster, and... uh, there was nobody there so it was sort of all us put brought some lights and stuff and tried to work the scene we didn't have a lot to go on we we as I, I it took us a while to ID this person we could tell she was missing a shoe we figured that maybe maybe we'd find that uh, from what we remember she was uh, still fully clothed um, but I, I I remember thinking, Oh boy, here here we are, uh, a week before Super Bowl, and Super Bowl's at Stanford. So I'm thinking, I got 100,000 extra suspects that I uh, wasn't planning on. It looked like she'd been strangled, but we weren't for sure we didn't find that until we got to the autopsy.
0: By 3 p.m. on January 18, 1985, Jane Doe had been brought to the coroner with the hopes that maybe he would have a better idea of who she may be. The coroner on duty that Friday afternoon at Valley Medical Center began his methodical examination. The first sentence of the autopsy report notes just how petite the victim was. The coroner noted she weighed just 95 pounds. She measured only 4 feet, 8 inches tall. On the right side of her forehead, a small cut was noted. A front tooth chipped. She was otherwise healthy, with the coroner noting most inspections yielded unremarkable results. As he went about his work, the coroner clipped fingernails and took other samples from the body, some potentially for use to determine what had led to that fateful discovery that morning behind the Safeway. But neither of those samples would ultimately point to what, exactly, had led to Jane Doe's death. No. On just the second page of the report, under the section noted External Evidence of Injury, the coroner noted the following... On the front and right side of the neck are multiple contusions, which vary from one-eighth of an inch to one-quarter of an inch in greatest dimension. The strap muscles of the neck, as well as the other pretracheal soft tissues, exhibit a moderate degree of contusion with hemorrhage. The tongue shows multiple hemorrhages on the anterior third as well as in the middle third. Jane Doe had been manually strangled to death. This was not a quick death; it was slow, it was hard.
3: It's a
2: very violent crime, but to be able to squeeze, um, you know, someone's someone's neck in that manner and so tightly and violently that the person dies, um, there's a tremendous amount of force.
0: We'd like to introduce you to veteran police detective Chris Kikuchi. He served as the primary investigator on this case later on.
2: At any point, you can realize that that person's losing air, obviously, and that person is struggling. And if to continue doing that till the, till the person dies, uh, I can't even imagine. Even at, you know, 100 pounds, obviously, you wrap your hands around anyone's neck, they're going to struggle. They're going to try to do whatever they can to get out of that. Um, so it, it, it's not easy.
0: That knowledge alone makes this investigation all that much more devastating. It also made us wonder, was this murder personal? Was this a crime of passion? Or was this an instance where total rage took control and ultimately cost one young woman her life? Was this a targeted incident or, God forbid, was this random and the start of something far more sinister? Here again is Detective Sergeant Don
1: McKay. The most frustrating part was just identifying her, finding out who she was, uh, where where she came from, where she where she lived. Um, so we had a base to start with. I mean, we had no place to start the investigation. You know, normally when you have when you when you know the person, you know where they live, you know where they hang out, you know where her associates. We had no idea of anything for three weeks, and uh, all we could do is collect the evidence and and freeze the you know what we could what we could collect and uh, because we didn't we didn't have the DNA base at the time nothing
0: but even though less than 24 hours had passed since Jane Doe's body was found the cause of death was still only half of the puzzle solved it would take two more weeks before Jane Doe had a name
2: she was Saba Gurmai. she had just turned 21 born in Mikele, Ethiopia in 1964 Saba had immigrated with her family to the United States when she was 17.
3: In Ethiopia, seven million people are threatened by starvation. Thousands have already died. The famine caused by drought is the worst in living memory, and now the rains have failed again for the third year in succession. The relief organizations are doing all they can, but there just isn't enough food to go around. One of the worst hit areas is in the north of the country where the problem has been complicated by two secessionist wars in Eritrea and Tigray.
2: Saba's family was part of a growing number of Ethiopians who had come to the United States to seek refuge, many of whom who were able to utilize new changes enacted through the passage of the 1980 Refugee Act, which was created to help fine-tune immigration procedure for refugees, particularly of humanitarian concern seeking admission to the United States. Ethiopia, during the time that Saba's family came to America, was in the throes of upheaval. Before they arrived on U.S. soil, Saba's family had lived through the overthrow of the government by the Ethiopian army. In 1974, when Saba had just begun her teen years, an interim military government had been put in place to create some kind of control at the government level, but their efforts were swiftly replaced by a Marxist regime. In
0: 1981... A civil war had erupted and a crippling drought plagued the country. That drought would be the catalyst for what many remember as the famine that sparked the first Live Aid concert in 1985.
3: Be a part of the most important rock event ever staged Live Aid. Saturday, July 13th, 7 a.m. Saturday. The stars in live performance for Ethiopia.
0: The one that was projected to raise about 10 million pounds for famine relief, but in fact raised triple that amount. The funds would be put towards helping the roughly 160 million people impacted by famine across northeastern Africa. In Ethiopia, reports were surfacing that aid groups that came to the country to help couldn't access certain villages and towns, exacerbating the crisis. Michele, Saba's home was hit especially hard. Saba's family arrived in the United States just two years before the peak of the conflicts that would plague Ethiopia until the early 1990s. Michele, during the height of the famine in the mid 1980s, unfortunately became known for its hunger camps that surrounded the city, which housed nearly 100,000 refugees. Estimates today suggest that in 1985, nearly 100 people died in these camps every day, waiting for some kind of reprieve.
2: As her family began to settle down roots in America, Saba was enrolled at Monroe High School in Rochester, New York, a large brown-bricked building with Greek columns in the picturesque upstate area that had opened its doors to students nearly 60 years before Saba stepped onto campus. But her time there was short. Saba was not involved in any clubs or sports, according to her family, nor did she actually finish high school. She dabbled in cosmetology school for a while after dropping out of high school, but that didn't hold her interest for long. By the time Saba traveled to California with her sister in 1984, she was ready for something different. She had been in California only seven months when she was killed. Once in California, Saba was known to flit from home to home between cities like Palo Alto, Santa Clara, and San Jose, couch surfing with friends or acquaintances, enjoying the local club scene. She had an alleged boyfriend, but she had never been married.
0: Where Mountain View fell on her radar was a bit of a mystery. She was not known to neighbors who lived near where her body was found. Saba was known to go out, sometimes to the chagrin of those who knew her. She drank and smoked marijuana, practices that today are not noteworthy, but back in the mid-1980s still carried somewhat of a social taboo. Saba was also not known to stay in one place for long. She was social, described by at least one person as feisty and an Ethiopian princess. Most notably, though, despite her ease with being out and about, no one had admittedly seen her the day before her death. Saba had essentially vanished. But now, word of Saba's death had begun to spread, particularly within the Ethiopian community. Recently, we found a copy of the 1985 report of Saba's death in the police blotter section of a local paper. Wedged at the bottom of the page, between a Super Bowl robbery crime spree and a rape arrest, The local paper highlighted in just eight short sentences the totality of the crime. Headline Murder Victim Apparently Strangled. A young woman whose body was discovered last week in a Mountain View dumpster apparently died from strangulation, a spokesman for the Santa Clara County Coroner's Office said Monday. It was a homicide, said the spokesman, who declined to be identified. There were some other minor injuries to the body, but nothing of any significance, he said. The results of the autopsy performed late Friday were to be turned over to Mountain View Police this week. Police Lieutenant Brown Taylor said the woman has yet to be identified. The partially clad body of the woman, whom police believe was in her late teens or early 20s, was discovered shortly before 8 a.m. Friday by employees of Safeway, 570 Steerland Road. Apparently, she had been killed and left in the dumpster sometime Thursday night, Taylor said. Police said the dead woman was black, weighed about 95 pounds, and was about five feet tall. And with the news spreading, friends and acquaintances began to come forward. A friend we'll call Taka said Saba had been in San Jose on January 12th, when she broke a window of an apartment that belonged to a man she had been staying with at the time. It was the longest period of time detectives knew of Saba's whereabouts. According to the man at the home, she had been staying with him practically since she had arrived in California the previous June. She'd celebrated her 21st birthday, three days before the window episode.
2: Finally, someone who could maybe give us a little more insight into who Saba was, where she may have been, and what may have happened to her. Leads like this are important, not just because they offer some semblance of direction with a case, but because when investigations slow, they bring about some hope and some much-needed feeling of movement. We knew little about Saba at the time, and for those in her community who knew of her— or for those who actually knew her, even they could not pinpoint exact dates or times that they had last seen her within a few days of her death. So, this was something, right? But, as was becoming a growing trend with this case, with each hope for a new lead, things quickly fizzled. On January 12th, when the police were called to address the broken window at the man's apartment, we know that they did ultimately escort Saba away. But from what the boyfriend knew she was out and about that by the next morning the last time he and probably anyone else had heard from her was on january 14th when she called him to let him know she was in palo alto specifically where though he could not say
0: interviews and gathering witnesses for saba's whereabouts could be described as tricky at best saba had also been seen maybe in a pickup truck with a white man at some point but exactly when the interviewee at the time could not be sure. He was quoted as saying the last time he saw Saba was when she was with an unknown black male. He thinks it was either January 11th or 12th. Another person said he knew of Saba, but had only heard her name since she had been killed. A third person said she stayed at the house about one month ago, but he had not seen her since. One interviewee surmised that it was possible Saba was killed because while she was social, was willing to drink and smoke. She refused to sleep with men. Another interviewee said Saba had been seen with a woman three weeks before, begging for money, but that that person didn't know the woman's name. Nearly one month after Saba was killed, on February 8th, an Ethiopian man came into the police department and told investigators that he had seen Saba maybe on the 14th or 15th of January, three days before she died, in a van with an unknown white man heading northbound on 3rd Street in San Jose. The reason this was so important, he said, was because he remembered something he did not tell detectives at the time he was initially interviewed. Saba was wearing some type of hat. This pattern of rough guesstimates on when people had seen Saba continued throughout much of the initial investigation, bleeding well into the second month after Saba was killed. By the end of March 1985, nearly all potential connections to Saba had been interviewed and there had been hardly any headway in the case.
2: Again, retired Detective Sergeant Don McKay. Sorry.
1: Well, we, we started at the uh, going through the apartments and the uh, behind the thing to see if somebody heard that, heard the car or heard that because we didn't know where she was dropped off in a truck or car or whatever. And we got a couple of people that thought they heard something back there around 4 in the, four in the morning, but uh, nothing they could put anything to it what it affected was trying to locate her where we 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 thought that she was probably picked up at a party in Palo Alto somewhere where there was a lot of Super Bowl parties going on and stuff we had no idea where she came from but we didn't realize that she was uh, of Ethiopian descent until till we talked to her sister that's the first time we had, even had an idea where she was from or what she was doing or uh, where she lived and uh, and her sister doesn't know where she lived for the last for three weeks prior to the murder, and we we had no idea where she had been. We went into numerous uh, locations, places. We had to try to find out where all the parties were at Super Bowl, and nobody know no witnesses at all. We never did come up with a witness. Did a lot of footwork. That ever lingering question still
2: loomed large, with the vast network of people who seemingly knew Saba or knew of her. Who would have had the motive to kill her? And even more so, who would have discarded her body in that dumpster at that Safeway? By April 2nd, detectives decided to use their trump card. They brought in Saba's alleged boyfriend for a polygraph examination. He was seemingly the last person known to have talked to Saba. Some had identified him as her boyfriend. He disputed that, though. There was no question, however, that he was close to her. So he must know something, right? Was it possible a fight had gone awry? Was he possibly mad at Saba because of her drinking and smoking and moving from place to place? Had Saba done something that caused him to snap? The following is an excerpt from the polygraph examination. Type of case. Murder. Requesting agency. Mountain View Police Department. Date. April 2nd, 1985. Question. Do you know for sure who caused Saba's death? Answer. No. Question, did you strangle Saba during January 1985? Answer. No. Question, were you physically present in the vehicle that took Saba to the dumpster where she was found? Answer. No. Question, did you last see Saba on 13 January when you left her in the front of that shop in San Jose? answer yes question did you see saba between 14 and 18 january 1985 answer no did saba call you on 14 january and tell you she was in palo alto answer yes on april 11th 1985 the results of the polygraph exam were returned to detectives they read after analysis of the charts produced during this examination, it is the opinion of this examiner that the boyfriend was deceptive in his answers to the relevant questions. Results? Deception indicated.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Silicon Valley Beat Major Crimes. For more details and for credit for the music and other source material used throughout our podcast, please visit the episode's website at pippa.io.